You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. As we turn to Exodus 22, we continue along in a section of the book of Exodus where God is giving to the nation of Israel the laws and the requirements for life within their nation. It's important to remember that these people have been covered by the blood at Passover, purchased by God as his precious possession. These are his people. He wants to make them into a kingdom of priests. He has bestowed upon them the promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They are his covenant people. These laws are designed to govern the nation and direct them in the ways of God. And of course, they are not exactly applicable to the church in our modern era, but they do demonstrate for us in many ways the heart of God, God's priorities, what God desires in our lives. Now we have the law of love ruling over us, something which takes us far above the law as prescribed here in the book of Exodus. Still, that said, there is so much for us to learn from this section of scripture, and I for one have so enjoyed studying it and teaching it, digging into it with you. He says in verse 1 of chapter 22, he says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep. So we're getting now into this section where God is going to deal with the protection of personal property. One thing that is just sort of an obvious conclusion that you come to from passages like this is that God expected that his people would have personal property, that they would cultivate their personal property and their individual wealth, so to speak. It's a very normal thing. God did not expect them to give it all away, although he did expect for them to be a generous people. So here we have the protection of personal property, which would, of course, be an expansion of the eighth commandment that you shall not steal. So if a man steals an ox or a Sheep. So, you know, you have the assumption here that people are going to disobey these Ten Commandments. So if a man steals, this is what happens. If he kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So a very stiff and steep price to pay. And hopefully this would be a theft deterrent in the nation of Israel. Understanding that if you sold it or you killed it, uh, you'd have to pay five oxen oxen for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. And so hopefully as a thief, you'd be deterred in this action. A stiff penalty would be paid. If a thief is, verse 2, found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So it's just a no contest kind of thing. If a thief breaks in and in the process of breaking in, the owner, the master, whoever, sees him and kills him, then there will be no guilt for that death. But, verse 3, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. And if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey, or a sheep, he shall pay double. 
So first here in verse 3, you have God announcing that if this crime of theft is occurring in the daylight, the sun has risen on him, then you're actually not allowed to take that man's life without blood guilt. You know, supposedly at the night, there'd be a little bit of confusion. Is this person here to steal or is he here to kill? But in the day, you'd be able to tell a little bit more easily what the motivation is all about. So, well, you can see them and perhaps, you know, be able to identify them later and point them out with some witnesses and all of that then you're not allowed to take their life. But then he goes on to say, if after being caught, he has nothing, then he'll be sold for his theft. Notice that they didn't have any prisons in that culture and in Israel. They would actually have to work off their debts. They'd be sold for their theft. You know, you'd either, for the crimes committed in Israel, you'd either work it off or you'd die it off. And the stolen beast, if it was found alive, whether an ox or a donkey, he'll pay double. So, you know, if he's caught, he has to work it off. What he has to work off is he has to give back the beast that he stole. And then he has to work in order to purchase an additional beast for the person that he stole from. So just a wonderful system there, very just. And, uh, you know, if you were stolen from and went through this judicial process, you would come out quite nicely as opposed to our modern situation where I suppose it makes you feel a little better if someone does some jail time. But quite often that doesn't happen. But it doesn't really help you with matters all that much. So to be able to see yourself be made whole and then some would have been a very just thing and a great deterrent for theft in that culture. He says in verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or, or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. So here you see that God is very concerned with the crops. And of course, God is simply laying down some specific instances that the judges would then be able to draw from to derive principles to help them decide all these individual cases that they would surely experience through the millions of people there in Israel. And so, you know, he says, listen, if you've got a field or a vineyard and, you know, someone lets their animal go into your area and graze there and it feeds from your field and eats your crops, then he's got to make restitution from it from the best of his own field and his own vineyard. So he can't be cheap. He's got to go all out and really make things right. And you know, obviously this could have been intentional or unintentional, but either way, once again, it's a man taking responsibility for his actions. He says, listen, that was my beast. He went into your field. He ate your fruit and I will now pay of the best of my fruit to make things right. And, you know, this was all designed to keep peace there in Israel. If people really lived this way and made things right in this kind of way, 
It would remove so much of the anger and the malice and all of that. It would just make it a very peaceable place to live when people made things right and confessed their wrongs. And in verse 6, you know, he says, listen, if a fire breaks out and it catches and it destroys your standing grain or your stacked grain or your field, then whoever started the fire, the arson, shall make full restitution. Once again, the taking of responsibility. You know, the mark of a godly Christian man is that of taking responsibility. I think in one sense you could say that the definition of being a man is to be responsible. Jesus was the perfect man for us. He came and showed us what it was all about. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes responsibility not just for his own crimes, which is what Exodus 22 is telling the people of Israel to do. Jesus goes above and beyond taking responsibility for his own crimes, for he committed none. He takes responsibility for our crimes. And so, you know, a godly Christian man takes responsibility for his own stuff, but he goes above and beyond just the law and he takes responsibility for the people around him. He takes responsibility for brokenness around him. It's not that he looks upon a widow or orphan and says, man, somebody else did that to them. That's not my responsibility. I'll take care of my household. He looks at that and says, no, I'm going to, as a good and godly man, take care of their responsibilities as well and give myself to go beyond just the scope of my own responsibility. I want to help others as well as Jesus Christ has so willingly laid down his life for me. And he goes on in verse 7 and says, If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So, you know, in that culture, they didn't have any banks. So personal property at times, you know, when there was a need for it, was given to a neighbor for protection. The one who received these valuables was responsible for these goods. Again, it would make you think long and hard about allowing yourself to be used in this kind of way. You'd have to have a strong relationship, a strong desire to be benevolent in this kind of way and put your own life on the line. And if the thief is found, the thief would pay double. If the thief, verse 8, is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So he has to go before the Lord, and the Lord would determine whether this man is just saying, oh, it was stolen while it was in my care, where he had actually dipped into it and taken it for himself. He says for verse 9, every breach or trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing. Again, these are requirements and guidelines for the judges. Of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. Verse 9, the one whom God condemns, he records, shall pay double to his neighbor. So there would be these moments where God would determine somehow, some way, the guilt of someone who was professing and saying, no, you're 
money that you submitted into my care to watch over or your possessions. You know, you went on a journey. You gave me some of your possessions. They're not here anymore. I'm telling you they were stolen. The thief cannot be found. They would go potentially to the judges, potentially before God in the tabernacle where a thing called the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and perfections, would be used to indicate yes or no whether this man was guilty or perhaps the judges just conducted a courtroom kind of environment and determined whether this man was lying and had in fact stolen the goods from his neighbor. And if he was guilty, he would pay double to his neighbor. So full restoration plus whatever he had taken, he'll pay double to his neighbor. Verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So again, very similar. This man deposits here a donkey or an ox, sheep, any beast, some livestock to his neighbor and it dies, it's injured, it's driven away, no one sees it, then they have to go before the Lord and the man who was supposed to be caring for the animal would take an oath before the Lord to see whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. And the owner who made the deposit has to accept that, he says. But if it was stolen and the Lord indicates that in that moment, then restitution will be paid but restitution will not be paid for an animal who was torn by beasts in the field. And then he brings the carcass as evidence that it was torn. I think this principle is so valuable in simply the way that we live our lives here on earth before the Lord. In short, living our lives as stewards of what God has committed into our trust. You know, I think of my children and I think just of the great responsibility and privilege that God has given to me of being a father. It's a huge responsibility. It's a large task. And in my mind, these children do not belong to me. They belong to the God of heaven. And well on my watch, I know that accidents happen. I know that there are beasts out there who do their thing, so to speak. But in general, I want to take responsibility so that on my watch, nothing is going to happen to that which God has entrusted into my care. I want what he has entrusted to me to thrive and to do well. He says in verse 14, he says, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So once again, the property rights there in the nation of Israel. Now we shift here to a bunch of miscellaneous laws revealing God's concern for mankind and really God's desire to make sure that people were not 
exploited. He's going to talk about virgins and foreigners and widows and the poor. These are people who would not as easily be able to defend themselves. A respect for humanity. This is in verse 16. He says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, so she's not engaged to be married, and lies with her. So he talks her into this. He seduces her. He has sex with her. He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. So premarital sex in those days led to marriage. You committed that crime, you're married. You pay the bride price. And verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. I dare say that if this law was put into practice in the culture that I'm living in, it would definitely curb a lot of premarital sexual activity. A 15, 16 year old kid is thinking about it. And then he thinks to himself, if I do this, I've got to marry this girl. I think a lot of guys would have pause and it would be a little bit of a restricting force there upon them. And that's what it was supposed to be there in the nation of Israel. Of course, an expand upon the seventh commandment regarding adultery. So if the father accepted it, he would marry this girl. And if he did not accept it, he would still pay the bride price, which would not clear his guilt. That would come through repentance and by the blood and all of that. But it would help him to make things right. He says, verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So here you have, again, a little three-command cluster that leads to death. They all sort of tie together. You've got this pagan worship, sorceress, sacrificing to other gods, and the lying with animals, which is part of the very heathen, pagan, debased Canaanite religions. So... He says, you know, if you find a sorceress, you're not to let her to live. You know, they're in league with demonic powers and are part of the godless religions around you. You're not to let them live. This was for the protection of the nation of Israel. And it shows us, you know, nationally, like I've said, God is speaking nationally here, not individually, speaking nationally. And it shows us the seriousness of the demonic realm and God's attitude and perspective about it. The word sorceress is the feminine form of a Semitic word that means magician or sorcerer. And it kind of speaks to incantations, magic, sorcery, the arts of witchcraft, and actually even has within it, when you translate this Hebrew into the Greek and the Septuagint version, you have the Greek word pharmakos, which indicates drugs and pharmaceutical potions and stuff like that. And I do believe that drugs open you up to the demonic realm in a powerful way. And so the magic that was widely practiced in Mesopotamia and all of that was condemned by God. He says, you're not to go that direction. You're not even to allow them to live amongst you. It's got to be totally outlawed in your midst. There is no freedom in this area. You cannot go in that direction. It is an unredeemable thing. And you will not permit them to live. And then the lying, of course, with an animal. You know, just a horrible act. 
but like I said, a part of the heathen worship of idols and obviously only flows out of a debased and corrupted view of human sexuality. God created them male and female for the two to become one flesh and be sexually committed to one another and to one another alone for life. But mankind, when they refuse to submit themselves to God's law and God's revealed order, begins to act like an animal until they get to this point, which seems in so many ways to be the absolute bottom of the barrel. This is where it trends. This is where it goes to an absolutely debased practice, devoted to destruction, God says. He says in verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. It's very interesting. Over and over again throughout the law, God would tell them, listen, the sojourner, don't oppress them because you were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. God wanted them to remember their experiences. He wanted them to remember where they came from. Basically, God wanted them to think about their history. Think about where they came from. Think about what they had been there in the nation of Egypt. And as they thought about that, they were to then respond with compassion. It's interesting, though, how often someone will remember where they came from and what they used to be. And instead of being compassionate towards others who are in a similar situation, they ridicule them and, you know, get on their case to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and to say things such as, if I could do it, you could do it kind of thing. But really, what we ought to do is to look back upon our lives. You know, for me, I was a young man who knew of the Lord, knew of his word, knew what his desires were for my life and what obedience looked like. And I resisted. I resisted the Lord. I gave myself to sexual activity and drunkenness and all of that. And, you know, I regret it. And now it would be easy for me to take a harsh tone. And of course, I have to hold out the narrow path and the little gate and not hold out the broad path that leads to destruction. But in the course of so doing, I can say it in a way in which I understand where someone is coming from and I understand the capability in my own heart to sin. And to remember where I came from should lead me to compassion for people who are in that same spot today. And the Lord desired that. He says, listen, you've got to take care of these sojourners. You've got to take care of the widow and the fatherless. He was wanting them to be a compassionate people extending mercy. If you lend, verse 25, money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? 
And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Really, underlining all of these commands is the compassion of God. He's announcing to the people, he's saying, listen, you should deduce from all the things I'm saying. Take care of the sojourner. Watch out for the poor. When you lend money, don't exact interest from the poor within your nation. Just lend it to them. Expect repayment, but don't get rich off of these loans. When you take a cloak for a pledge, give it back to him at night because he's going to have to sleep in it. What you should deduce from all of this is that God announces, I am compassionate. That is the driving force behind this entire section of commands, the compassion of the Lord, the compassion of God. And of course, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the compassionate God, the compassionate Lord. And we, as his people, should be compassionate as well, taking care of people who are impoverished, taking care of widows and orphans, especially the New Testament reveals to us those inside of the body of Christ that we can care for. He says in verse 28, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler, of your people. It's interesting how God connects a respect for himself with a respect for the rulers. In other words, God was saying you're to respect your rulers and refrain from cursing them even as you would refrain from cursing God. In the New Testament, of course, we're told in Romans 13 verse 1 that every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority, Paul writes, except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And of course, it's very difficult to live this kind of life, but there's a corruption that I've noticed that enters into a human being's heart when they begin to allow themselves to curse rather than pray for their rulers. Here God is telling the people of Israel, don't curse your rulers. In the New Testament, we're told to lift up our holy hands, and to pray for our rulers and pray for their peace. He says in verse 29, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So they had these sacrifices and offerings that they would give, and the tendency would be to delay in giving it. But God is saying, listen, you put this first. You don't delay. You give your firstborn, which they had a system of redeeming their firstborns back to themselves. So you give those offerings. You make those payments. You shall do, verse 30, the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. And on the eighth day you shall give it to me. There's a time limit. You've got on that eighth day, bring that sacrifice. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. That would make them unclean. You shall throw it to the dogs. So a consecrated people who rush to bring their sacrifices to the Lord. How often we have to be cajoled, prodded, pushed, guilted into giving our money, our time, or our talents to the work of God's kingdom. It ought to not be the case. We belong to the Lord and all we have belongs to him. And as we give unto him, he so bountifully gives back to us. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. 
For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.